Do you love listening to true crime podcasts but could do with hearing something a bit lighter as well? I'm Tara Saraban, host of World's Dumbest Criminals podcast. It's a show all about the most ridiculous and bizarre true crime stories from around the globe. World's Dumbest Criminals is available on iTunes and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe if you don't want to miss any criminally stupid shenanigans. Welcome back to episode 34. I'm Beth. And I'm Bailey. And we are True Crime B&B. Hooray. Yay. So this might be a rusty one because we just had a two-week vacation, kind of. They didn't know it, but we did. Yeah, because somebody <laughs> keeps going out of town and messing up our recording schedule, so. Well, that won't be happening anytime soon because I got smited by Sky Kitty last <laughs> night. <laughs> she did. <laughs> Now no longer have a car. Sitting there watching something on TV, it was the cat show, wasn't it? We were watching a documentary about cats. How much more innocent could you be? And all of a sudden we heard a big thump outside during a rainstorm. (laughs) And I peeked out through the blinds to see what chaos was Uh going on out there. And a big, like, two-inch diameter stick had fallen out of the oak tree and landed vertically in Bailey's windshield. It wasn't that big. It's like the size of my hand. But it just happened to fall from high enough up where the velocity shattered the entire thing so yeah that's how our week's going anyway enough of that (laughs) this week I'm going first yes we didn't really discuss it I just assumed so yes okay well I decided to do episode three of campus murders okay it's been a minute since I did one okay and it's a kind of short story but it's kind of a mysterious death on campus Mm -hmm. and we're still years later wondering what the hell happened so I'll just jump into it for you Where are we? We are going to... I asked myself that question reading up on this because it's called Indiana University of Pennsylvania. So myself, I was like, where is this school? There's an Indiana, Pennsylvania, isn't there? Yeah, so it is a town of Indiana in Pennsylvania. And that's the university there. Yeah. Our person today that we'll be talking about is named Jack Allen Davis Jr. He was born August 15th, 1967 in Pittsburgh. And then he went on to attend IUP in Pennsylvania. All right. Jack, there's not really a lot known about his early life. Unfortunately, what happened to him is mostly what we do now. Well, because back in those days, there was no record of anything. There wasn't, like, Facebook. There wasn't yeah. anybody like, oh, we yeah, he gonna, liked this. You weren't going to find his social media photos or mm-hmm. anything. <laughs> so what I did find, he was a sophomore at the time in 1987. So he's 20 years old. Okay. And he had joined in his time at this university a fraternity called Sigma Tau Gamma. All right. This fraternity was not registered with the school. They weren't sanctioned. They weren't sanctioned. It wasn't getting funds from the school or anything like that. It was just like an off-campus fraternity where the members, anybody who was rejected by the actual fraternities for the campus, would end up going to this fraternity and becoming best friends of those people. Okay. And what they called it was a renegade fraternity family. That's just... All right. And it was a very strange fraternity because a lot of the members were just normal college students, such as Jack Allen Davis, and some were kind of seedy and were in drug trading and selling around the campus. So just like regular fraternities. (laughs) Yeah, but with less money probably, right? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Jack, after joining this fraternity, got the typical big brother mentor, Mm -hmm. as they usually do. And his big brother just so happened to be the big-time cocaine dealer on campus. Oh, handy. It's a good start to this. Hey. Now we're going to the actual event of what happened to Jack. 
On Friday, October 16, 1987, he attended a party at another frat house with his brothers. Okay. And then they went to some bars in downtown Indiana, the city. Yeah. To continue on the night and just did a bar crawl throughout the area. And somehow his fraternity brothers lost track of him through the night. He never did return back to his apartment that evening, which he shared with a couple of his roommates. And nobody had heard from him. He was reported missing. Nobody's heard from Jack since Friday night. However, on the evening of Wednesday, October 21st, students stumbled upon the body of Jack at the bottom of a staircase in the outside of the science building where all the science courses were called Wayant Hall. Okay. And they, I only know it's on the outside. I looked at pictures on the internet, and I think they've done some reconstruction because there are no staircases on the outside of this building anymore. Right. But they said it was external, so it must have been like up to the entrance or something like that. Mm-hmm. Since nobody had seen him since Friday evening, they kind of assumed he must have gotten drunk, fallen down the stairs, and choked on his vomit or something like that. They couldn't really figure out what had happened. So they called in a pathologist and they performed an autopsy and they ruled his death as an accident, saying that he had in fact died after falling down the stairs, passing out, and then asphyxiated on his vomit. You would think that... Yeah. Why would the vomit happen? I mean, did he throw up because of the tumble? I mean, well, I mean, how many times do you hear about football students getting a concussion and throwing up from it, you know? So it's totally possible maybe. that could... Maybe so. Either that or he just got to the bottom of the stairs, fell asleep, and then threw up in his sleep because he was very intoxicated the last time he was seen. Okay. So it's plausible for the most part. Yeah. However, a couple of questions did come up from Jack's family saying, um, okay, well that all is fine and well, makes sense, but nobody's seen this body on one of the main science buildings on campus for three days. We've had class. So what day did they find him? He went missing. He was last seen intoxicated on Friday Friday night. They did not find his body until Wednesday evening. Holy crap. And this is the main science building on campus. He was not there. Right. So his family's like, somebody put him there. Or something went wrong somewhere. Somebody placed his body here. But the coroner had come back and said it was an accident. And they're like, sorry, that's what happened. I don't know what to tell you. Well, that that may have been still what happened, but it didn't happen there. there. Not there. Yeah. That's crazy. So finally, two years later, the family got in contact with a Dr. Cyril Wecht, which is a very That name famous, sounds familiar. He's a very famous uh, forensic pathologist. Okay. He worked on the John Bonnet Ramsey. He worked on JFK okay. assassination. He worked on like okay. so many that things. explains why I know the name. Yeah, so he's really good. He knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He comes into this and decides just to give it a look over on the autopsy that the original pathologist had done. And he found some alarming things from this report. Okay. First of all, he discovered that at the time of Jack's death, they had done blood draws and stuff like that and found he had absolutely no alcohol in his system that night. Oh, The boy. day that he was found, at least. So he had to be alive for at least 30 hours after he was yeah, last seen intoxicated. Yeah, all metabolize out. Mm-hmm. So that in itself is alarming. That is alarming. That's really bizarre. Mm-hmm. He also discovered that there were no findings in Jack's lungs of any kind of food or bile traces. So the whole, he asphyxiated on his own vomit, where the hell did they get that from? Yeah. It doesn't make sense. So that was also alarming. So the whole theory of him drunkenly stumbling down the stairs and asphyxiating on vomit is complete bullshit. We now know at this point. Yeah. 
Well, the whole idea that it's Friday night, I'm shit-faced, I think I'll go study science now. Yeah, why was he there? Yeah, none of this makes any sense. And I, d- I will post a picture, I got a screenshot of the Google Maps. It's like a 15-20 minute walk from the bar area where he was last seen to this hall. Wow. So when you're that intoxicated, it's, no. Okay. Yeah. So, on top of all of that, they also discovered that Jack, on the night he'd gone out, all of his friends reported that he was freshly shaven. He shaved his entire face right before they went out. Okay. However, when his body was found, he had multiple days worth of stubble grown out. So that, again, goes along with the theory that he was alive for some time after he was last seen and talked sure. Yeah. Although, yeah. I think your hair... It continues to... I think it's more the skin shrinkage. And it then, is, yeah. but I mean, it still would make it look like your hair possibly. had grown. That's possible, too. So it may have made that seem even worse than it actually was. Probably. Agreed. But yeah, so then they also noted that it had been raining heavily for Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and his body and clothes were all completely dry. And people have been walking this area the whole time, so it definitely, somebody put him there. That's... Somebody dumped him there, but... Mm-hmm. So where was he? What, did he have marks on his body? Or was he beaten up we'll or anything? We'll kind of get to that, because the okay. cherry on top, this is just him going over what the original autopsy okay. said so far. I don't mean to jump ahead. I'm no, just... there's so many questions to this, so it's like... Absolutely. Not even all of them ever get addressed. But the cherry on top of this first autopsy report was when Cyril Wecht looked into it and said, the pathologist who did this never even examined his skull. Never once. Never even cut the skin. Never, nothing was ever performed on his head. Okay. So he decided to go ahead and have Jack's body exhumed with the permission of his parents. They wanted to know, too. Sure, they did. And he performed the autopsy himself. So finally, he got to look at his skull and discovered three separate fractures, which were not consistent with a fall downstairs because you would, from a high velocity like that, expect an eggshell crack. Like, think of an eggshell dropping Mm -hmm. from a distance. You would expect something like that, but these were like... Like your windshield. Yes, exactly. Like, it spreads out because of all the velocity Mm -hmm. hitting the one single point, but these were actual wounds on his head from something having hit him. Okay, that's mysterious. Yes, and he also determined from that that with all the blood pooling in his brain, that's actually the cause of his death. Wow. So he never vomited or choked on anything like that. Wow. So that never happened. Also, it did make sense that he had fallen downstairs or something else like that because his body had no other bruising, no other injury, no defensive wounds, nothing like that. So So someone caught him unaware. Caught him unaware. Maybe an accident happened. Something went wrong. We don't really know. Doesn't it's sound that way. Kind of get to that theory okay. a little bit. Also, he noted that when Jack's body was found, he was found wearing a fraternity jacket, the one belonging to his big brother, the big time cocaine dealer, with his name on the back of it. So that's one of the theories is maybe it was a mistaken identity situation. Maybe he'd oh. screwed somebody over, saw this guy out, that could and be. Jack just never saw it coming. Who knows? But That could be. Did after, Jack have any jacket on when he left on Friday? He did. He was last seen at the bar wearing that jacket, and he was found wearing that jacket. So did he not have his own jacket? I mean, why? I don't think he'd been in the fraternity long enough to have his own. It seemed like so it was a So he just borrowed thing. it even when they left the... Yeah, it was like his roommate or something like that, his big brother guy. Okay. He just was friendly with him and happened that to borrow his jacket. seems pretty yeah, plausible. Yeah, Jack's death, fortunately, was changed from accidental to suspicious after this, but went cold. Until 2005, it's still cold, don't get your hopes up. In 2005, a retired police officer from Indiana, Pennsylvania, 
contacted the family of Jack to let them know that he had been contacted by him, as in the police officer had been contacted by Jack two weeks prior to his death, saying that he needed protection and then never got around to having that meeting with him and had no idea why he wanted protection or what he thought was happening. It's not very helpful. I don't know why he waited until 2005, 20-something years How was that not disclosed during the investigation of his death? I think he didn't work on the investigation. He just never even... Like, he it was didn't rolled know? I mean, how big he is Indiana, Pennsylvania? Yeah, I don't know. It's like the that other one with Sophie Sergi, the guy acting yeah. like, I didn't know that someone was Somebody killed in my died? dorm last night. What? I mean, you're in the police. You know this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That yeah. sounds like and His crap. name was never even released, so I can't even tell you why. That sounds weird. Yeah. This case is bonkers to me. I just wanted to put it out there because somebody knows something. Somebody knows what happened that night, and it has been covered by Unsolved Mysteries. There's an episode about it. Okay. And there's also a book, which I put on my Amazon read list before this. It's written about Jack's death by Marlene Gentlecore, and it's called Justice Wanted, The Kid in the University Stairwell. And she wrote this with the help of Jack's stepbrother. So, like, she knows a lot of the ins and outs of his daily activities and stuff like that. Okay. And her main theory is he went to a party. Something happened at a party. Even her research found that there were five different fraternity-on-fraternity rival fights happening in that area that night. So maybe he got involved. He got hit a couple times. His friends took him somewhere thinking he would just sleep it off and feel better. And then he died. That's her major theory. I just don't know. don't know. If my friend, even if he was in a fight he shouldn't have been in, mm-hmm. if he's unconscious from this fight, I'm going to take him to the emergency room well, because I don't want him to die. In 1987, that was before they had the rules of, oh, if you're under the age of 21 and you're drinking but your friend is unconscious, you can call and not get in trouble. They didn't have that kind I of stuff. I wouldn't have known please. that rule one way or the other. Yeah. And I was in college in 1987. and. No. In fact, that guy was a year younger than me. And I don't know college students who would just let their friend die because he was in a fight that he shouldn't have been in. I know. That's just ridiculous. It's just hard because not everybody has the hearts that we do and the people in the true crime community do. That's what's frustrating to me is that I totally could see that happening. I know plenty of people who have gotten in situations like this and they were helped out, luckily survived the night from situations like this, but because a stranger found them, not because their friends were there. So I could see it happening and I could see the whole his identity was mistaken happening. I could see a lot of things going wrong. That sounds a lot more plausible to me Mm -hmm. than his friends just let him die because they didn't want to get in trouble. Well, maybe he got in a fight. Everybody went in a different direction. And And then he asked, you know, how did he get his dead body from where it dropped and died? Maybe one of the rival people saw his fraternity jacket and said, oh, shit, that's a fight that we were in against that fraternity. That is awful. I don't know. I wanted to show you. I have one screenshot, and this is another one I'll post. So this is the hall he was found at. Okay. And that main road up there, that's the main road to the whole college. And his body was found in the front of that. Yeah. That body that was, was not, not there, there for, for three days. No. Five was, days, sorry. It was but not there days. for five days. Somebody yeah. let him die or found him dead and mm. dropped him off there hoping somebody would deal with it. I hope that after all this time, maybe somebody out there, if we just keep drawing attention to it, it's been, what, 40 years Yeah, now? if your friend was involved in this and you've been trying to protect them for mm-hmm. all these years, it's time to just let his family know what happened to him. 
That's all I got on Jack Davis. All right. So this story is about a man named Bobby Gale. Bobby Gale is a quiet and kind man. He has religious faith that has been a large part of his life. I watched actually several videos of him talking about what happened to him and that his brother made and that he was sending to his kids. And he just seems like a sweetheart of Mm -hmm. a man. He's strongly family oriented. He's extremely close with his siblings and his five children. He also loves his job working in construction and he takes great care to do good work for his clients. Mm -hmm. It's very important to him that he do right by everyone he comes across in his daily life. He has people around him in different aspects of his life from all races and creeds, and he sees all people through the eye of gentle brotherly love. Not all religion is the gentle, loving kind. Absolutely, yeah. But his is. Yeah. His version of religion is gentle, kind, and brotherly love. I can get on board with that. Me too. So he sets out to harm nobody, and if he can help them, he will help them. Mm Mm-hmm. In October of 2021, so less than a year ago, Bobby was 45 years old and working with another man on some construction inside of a restaurant after hours in Stockton, California. At about 11.30 p.m. on October the 8th, Bobby and the other man finished building a wall inside the restaurant and shut their work down for the night. They walked outside through the parking lot of a Wells Fargo bank where a large Silverado pickup truck flew past them at high speed, going the wrong way through the ATM lanes, and almost hit them. Bobby was obviously alarmed by the close call, as anyone would be. Right. He threw his hands up in the air in the universal symbol of WTF, mm-hmm. and he loudly exclaimed, Hey man, slow down! Well, it's a lot nicer than I would have been. Yeah, well, <laughs> just remember, Bobby is a really sweet, kind, gentle man. Mm-hmm. Immediately upon hearing Bobby's frustrated words, The Silverado just stopped short. Guy slammed on the brakes. The driver's side door opened. A small white man climbed down out of the driver's seat and stomped back to behind the pickup truck. Immediately, he used a racial epithet towards Bobby, who's an African-American man, and he had dared to speak to correct this white man, who Mm. apparently has issues with that. The white man then immediately pulled a gun, shamelessly shouting, Die, N-word! Die, N-word! And as he yelled these ugly words at a man he didn't even know, he commenced shooting Bobby Gale. Not once, not twice, not even three times. No, he shot Bobby seven times. Oh my God. Bobby had lived long enough to know there is no cooperating with someone who would do such a thing. Uh Uh-uh, no. Because blind hatred just can't be reasoned with. There's nothing you can say to these people that's going to get through to them. So he put his hands up to hopefully show the attacker that he was not a threat to him. And Bobby pushed himself backwards and partially under a dumpster that was next to him to try to get some protection. Mm. Bobby's friend also had managed to jump behind something, probably the dumpster, and to stay out of the line of fire. And he was fortunately not injured. The white man got back in his truck and drove away. Bobby immediately called his brother Marlon, but it was late and Marlon missed the call. In a message that is surely much too common to be received by black families in this country, Bobby left him a voicemail saying he'd been shot and please pray for him. And then Bobby called 911. Bobby was taken to the hospital where it was discovered that he had two bullet wounds in his face, one in the neck, two in the shoulder, one in the abdomen, and one in the leg. He was fortunate that none of the gunshot wounds had hit any major artery. Bobby was in the hospital for 11 days and finally left the hospital under his own steam, walking on October the 19th, 2021. Jesus. He's a tough guy. Incredible, yeah. 
It was also fortunate that the crime had been captured on the security cameras of the Wells Fargo Bank. Oh. Images of the shooter were released to the public, and a $10,000 reward was put up for tips leading to the arrest of the perpetrator. An anonymous tip came in that led to an arrest warrant being written. Before Bobby was even out of the hospital, police had picked up 31-year-old Michael Hayes for the crime. Michael Hayes was indicted on attempted murder, assault with a firearm upon a person, use of a firearm in commission of a felony, intentional and personal discharge of a firearm, infliction of great bodily injury, carrying a loaded firearm upon his person in a public place, and hate crime charges. Oh, I was going to say, he better go down for hate crime. Yes, absolutely. The hate crime charge in California will add three additional years to his sentence if he's found guilty. Good. Bobby attended Michael Hayes' arraignment, but didn't want to talk to him. He just wanted to make eye contact. He wanted to try to understand what would make a stranger have so much hatred for a person they had never met before in their lives. Mm -hmm. He really just wanted to understand why Hayes had tried to kill him. But Hayes, coward, would not even meet Bobby's gaze. Bobby's healing has been going as well as could be hoped for. His breathing, his speech, his mental capacity, all were normal. Mm -hmm. He did leave the hospital with a bullet still lodged in his skull that's likely to remain there because removing it would just cause more damage. It isn't certain yet whether he will be able to perform the same level of hard work because construction is hard physical work. Mm -hmm. But he loved it, so he hopes to be able to return to that, but there's no guarantee that he'll actually be able to go back and do that same work again. Horrible. Since the healing process is going to take some time, the family set up a GoFundMe trying to keep the family on its feet while he can't earn income from his construction work. They were hoping for $45,000 to cover medical expenses and to help take the pressure off of household finances, and they raised over $51,000. The GoFundMe, by the way, is still open if you got money burning a hole in your pocket and you just want to help. The name of the account is Help Bobby Gale's Recovery colon Shooting Victim. Mm-hmm. So if you feel like sharing some money with the family to help them through this, I'm sure they would still appreciate anything that is put into their account. Well, it sounds like it couldn't go to a sweeter guy. Cause... Oh my God, he's just an amazing sweet man. <laughs> Michael Hayes, who had been a United States Postal Service letter carrier since 2018, was said to have been drinking nearby in a bar until he left, and that's when he was racing through the parking lot in his truck. Of course he was drunk. I don't know if he was drunk, but he'd been drinking. And some people start getting shitty as soon as they get any alcohol in them, you know? Yeah, but it's if you've had even one drink, you just question yourself for a second. And be like, hey, am I good? Like, it's not going to kill me if I waited out for 45 minutes, you know? Yeah. Well, he doesn't sound like a guy who questions himself. No, he questions everybody around him. And wonders what they did wrong to make the shitty thing happen to him. Exactly. Mm. He had been remanded without bail and was denied his attorney's request for him to serve at home with an ankle monitor. Judge says, no, I don't think so. Nah. Mm -mm. His first hearing was scheduled for December 1st, 2021, but I found no record of the results of that, so I don't think the trial has actually happened yet. Mm -hmm. But hell, they got him on videotape. I don't think he's going to get off on this. Bobby Gale has chosen to maintain a place of non-hatred towards his attacker. He said, I can't have hatred living in my heart because if I do, it takes the place of love and other things like that. Mm-hmm. And it seems that somehow it's always the victim of hate crimes who is expected or chooses to turn the other cheek. But hate crimes just keep increasing. Mm-hmm. When bias motivates an unlawful act, it is considered a hate crime. People who would commit a hate crime, be it racially motivated against black, Latin, or Asian individuals, or against religious groups like Jewish or Muslim people, 
or against the LGBTQ community, or even gender bias. Hatred towards women or men is also a bias that could lead to a hate crime. But all these people that would commit these types of crimes would do this to have an unjustified bias and hatred toward people that they lump into groups that they consider bad. Mm -hmm. The more divisively tribal that we become as a country, and it's happening more and more and more all the time, Mm -hmm. it's just getting worse. It's widely known that racially motivated hate crimes, especially towards Asians, increased 76% in 2020 Mm -hmm. and another, get this, 342%. Three and a half times again in 2021 due to ignorance about the coronavirus pandemic. I can't even believe that number. Yeah. Wow. It's pretty unbelievable that people are that hateful and ignorant that they will just go out and attack somebody because they are of a cultural heritage that this person isn't. I just don't get it. I don't get it. Hate crimes in general are still increasing against all the groups that I mentioned and against groups I probably didn't mention as well. Mm -hmm. I wanted to provide some current statistics on the 2021 numbers of hate crimes in the U.S., but the most recent finished reports from the FBI are only from 2019, which was before the last two years that had the huge increases. Yeah. But one thing that was clear is that hate crimes had reached in 2020 the highest level since 2008, and they had been falling for 12 years prior to 2020. Strange. The Southern Poverty Law Center is an amazing source of information. Mm -hmm. They've been fighting hate crime commission and apathy since 1971. They have 10 basic recommendations for how we can counterbalance hate groups and hate crimes. I'll repeat this in a minute, but only about 5% of hate crimes are actually performed by organized groups. Or people that are in organized groups. Like There's the just, KKK type of thing. Yes, exactly. Okay. So that's only accounts for about 5% of them. 95% of them are just One-offs unadjusted people. people who just are scared of everything and hate everybody. Yeah, that doesn't shock me just with generational stuff being passed along, you know? Yeah. There's just some things we're just waiting to die off, and unfortunately that's one of them that we're still waiting. The guy that did this was only 31. He's only a few years older than you. So I hate that there are people in the younger generations who are still coming up with this bullshit. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so I want to get back to the Southern Poverty Law Center's recommendations on things that we can do as people to try and improve the situation. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the first thing is one, act. Do something to show that you don't accept the bias itself Mm -hmm. or any harmful act of the perpetrator. Apathy will be viewed as acceptance. You should make it clear that you're not okay with this, whatever this specifically is in that situation. Mm -hmm. Join forces, that's number two. Reach out to allies from whatever groups are locally available to you to form a diverse coalition of support for marginalized groups and to stand against hate. Diversity is the key in this item. There must be a united support network. Mm -hmm. Number three, support the victims. A person targeted in a hate crime is in an especially vulnerable position and will likely feel unsafe and terribly alone. They've been attacked for simply being who they are and they need to see that the majority of people do not agree with this blind hate. Mm -hmm. They need to know that people out there are on their side. So reaching out with even small acts of support can mean a lot in the healing process of a victim. Number four, speak up. Don't debate hate group members because you probably can't reason with them. Their hatred isn't based on reason. 
Speak up to say positive things, to spread goodness, to counter the evil with positivity. Mm-hmm. Denounce the evil of targeting the vulnerable. Inform and unify the community against hate crimes. Number five, educate yourself. Learn who's at the center of the hate in your community. Is it groups or is it individuals? Mm-hmm. Find out what motivates them and why have they chosen to scapegoat the people that they do. But be aware Like I said before, only 5% of the hate crimes are committed by organized groups. If you know more about who commits the majority of hate crimes, you have a better chance of finding some middle ground and finding some ways to hit off some of their ugliness. Mm -hmm. Once there's middle ground, maybe it's possible to reach them. You know, there are a lot of stories out there of ex-KKK members who met a black man in some circumstance and... Mm -hmm. They built a friendship, and then the KKK guy says, holy crap, I've had this misguided judgment all these years. Mm -hmm. How could I have been so wrong about a whole group of people? And maybe you can be the one that helps them see the light. God, I wish I could remember the name. There's a tattoo artist on TikTok who does cover-up tattoos for free from people who had, like, prison tats of, like, Nazi symbols and KKK-related stuff. And then they come out of prison like, I was a fucking idiot when I got this. I didn't mean it. Like, I didn't know what I was signing up for. And now I regret it. I have friends of of this community, and I'm embarrassed. That's amazing that somebody is helping them do the right thing. The number six recommendation is to create an alternative. And this is referring to, like, when the KKK has a rally. Mm Mm-hmm. Don't go to the rally and try to shout down the KKK. And then you're outnumbered. All that does is give them an adrenaline rush and make them feel powerful. Mm -hmm. Create an alternative location for a positive rally to channel people away from the KKK or the Proud Boys or whoever this ugly group is that's Mm -hmm. trying to stir up hatred. Focus on loving support and unity. Number seven recommendation, pressure your leaders. The fight against hate, and therefore the fight to reduce the numbers of people who think it's acceptable to be hateful and commit crimes against groups that they dislike, needs to be supported by political and community leaders. People like mayors, police chiefs, college presidents, school principals, business leaders, and local clergy can all help in showing a united front in favor of unity and love. Number eight, stay engaged, promote acceptance, and address biases before another hate crime can occur. The Stockton community really reached out to support Bobby Gale. It made his family feel so grateful and loved, and it helped reduce the residual fear that anybody's going to feel after having some sort of unprovoked attack like that happen to them. The ninth recommendation is to teach acceptance. Display unified diversity and inclusion in your life, in your family, in your friends groups, and anywhere you can. By actively including those who are sometimes excluded, you're showing the bias that they are in the wrong, that you don't accept or support their biases, and that love wins. Mm -hmm. Number 10, dig deeper, and this is hard for people. Look inside yourself for biases and stereotypes. Even those of us who would never purposefully exhibit biased or bigoted behavior, have been raised in environments where no doubt some biases were observed while we were growing up. No one in my family when I was little ever spoke any harmful or bigoted words about people of other races or religions. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, nobody talked about gender identity, so that one wouldn't have even really... Qualified for even a discussion. Yeah, nobody would have even brought up because nobody talked about that back then. Yeah. Or differently abled people. You know, Mm -hmm. people make fun of people who are mentally or physically disabled all the time. Mm -hmm. My family didn't. 
but people do. Well, I mean, I grew up on the playground with people saying the R word all the time. Yeah. And I, luckily, I never did because one of my best friends had an autistic brother. And so I learned very early on that's not okay. But yeah. yeah. So normalized in a lot of ways. But the fact that nobody in my family spoke out against people, mm-hmm. I also didn't grow up being exposed to those other groups or yeah. individuals. So until college, I had been relatively sheltered amongst middle-class white people who were cisgender and subscribed to some sort of Christian religious belief. Mm-hmm. I try to look at interactions with people and spot the biases, either theirs or mine. And I, I kind of do this actively, mm-hmm. not because I'm trying to catch people, but just because I feel like it keeps me honest. Mm-hmm. And so some of the most obvious ones are when someone is telling you about what happened to them. They're telling you a story about some mundane thing that happened to them. Mm-hmm. And they say things like, I was in line talking to this older lady and this black girl came up and interrupted us to ask where the bathroom is. Mm-hmm. And I think to myself, what purpose is there for pointing out her race? If you're a person who does this, ask yourself, mm-hmm. why am I pointing out the race of this person? If it's not relevant to the story, mm-hmm. then it's not necessary to include in the story. Unless it's like... This person came up, smacked me in the back of the head, and then ran away. What did they look like? Oh, it was a black individual wearing this. Like, then it's okay if you're, like, describing it to the police. Otherwise, cut that shit out. Why do people do that? Exactly. (laughs) And when you point that out to people that they're adding a race descriptor where it's irrelevant, Mm -hmm. they get pissed at you. Mm -hmm. They try to make you out to be the bad guy. They talk about, well, it's just a fact. She was black. But what Mm -hmm. they're really doing is they don't mention the race of the older lady because to them her race doesn't matter because it's the same as theirs. Mm -hmm. Therefore, only the interrupting black girl is the different one. She's the other. She's them, Mm -hmm. right? And that's what it comes down to. We as humans have the power to stop segmenting the population into them and us. Yeah, there are definitely some very bad people out there, but those bad people aren't identifiable by their race, their religion, their gender or gender identity, or whether they have a physical or mental disability. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be able to look at somebody and by any of those things say, that's a bad person. Mm-hmm. Because you're going to be guessing. Yeah, I could be a bad person and I'm not going to fit into any of the marginalized categories. Mm-hmm. If Michael Hayes had decided to stop his truck and shoot a white man seven times for telling him to slow down, Would he have gone out of his way to use a racially hurtful and historically offensive slur against him? No, we know he wouldn't. No, he would have used (laughs) some run-of-the-mill cuss word at him because to Hayes, that guy would be his equal. Mm -hmm. But to be realistic, it's unlikely that Michael Hayes would have even stopped to confront a white man who had done exactly the same thing that Bobby Gale had done. You know what he would have done? He would have called them a bitch or something derogatory towards women because it just can't be on your level, right, buddy? That's (laughs) a really good point. He only stopped because he was enraged that a black man would dare to tell him that he had done something wrong. Even though he objectively was doing something wrong. So he had to know he was going to get caught, though, because he left a witness, even if... Well, he was probably hoping that Bobby would die. Mm -hmm. And the other guy obviously didn't even get hurt. But... Like you said, maybe he was intoxicated. Maybe he really wasn't... You don't think it's straight. You just yeah. do and then... Yeah. I don't know. But regardless, yeah. the only hope we have of improving the state of hate crimes in the U.S. is for good people to call out the bad ones. Mm-hmm. To refuse to accept the backroom jokes where the teller assumes that you share their bias. Tell them their joke is racist or anti-Semitic or ableist or misogynistic. Mm-hmm. And it's not fucking funny. Mm-hmm. 
We show kindness to people and support them in the face of hate. And yeah, that can be scary. Mm -hmm. But let's be honest, those people who are typically subjected to hate crimes based on gender identity, race, religion, or ability have already been fighting on their own, fighting for their own lives, for their own peace of mind forever in this country. We all need to be allies and we need to start now. Mm -hmm. Laws don't cover everything and obviously they don't usually prevent someone from being victimized. Potential targeted people need every one of us to stand with them to illustrate that we don't accept the hate as a defensible part of life. Mm -hmm. So let's make the commitment and stand with them. And I am now officially worn out. So do we have anything else? Or are we just going to close up shop for the day? I don't think I have any updates. Thank you for being here today. Mm -hmm. And as usual, you can feel free to find us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at True Crime BNB. Or you can contact us at truecrimebnbpod at gmail.com if you have anything that you want to send us in an email. Mm-hmm. I think that's it. Thank you for joining us today for episode 34, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. I Normal. just have to tell you, as you're doing that, I feel like I'm in the position at the gynecologist right now because you have a towel over top of your computer for sound reverberation, right? Yes. And every time you lift it up to look at the screen, I feel like they're <laughs> lifting up my coat. Oh, everything looks normal today, ma'am. Christ. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't like that. I don't either. Stop doing it. I feel so exposed right now. <laughs> Mysterious death on campus. Mysterious? Mysterious. Mysterious. Okay, that's um, different. So, well, this is starting early. Hello. Shh. Good thing that was the bad story. <laughs> yeah, not really anything. Even our good <laughs> stories are still not good. It's mm. called True Crime B&B. They know what they're here for. Okay. You know, we sell the upper story. I know. <laughs> terrible. And then we snatch it back every week. We're like, ha! Mm, I'm a little phlegmalicious. Oh, that's gross. And we'll futilely put out our email address one <laughs> time. Weirdo. <laughs> I was like, wait, am I supposed to say something here? Yeah, we usually say bye at the end. <laughs>